Welcome to Soma Community Church on this beautiful Sunday on March, March 29th. This is our second recorded message. We are doing this in faithfulness to to God and obedience to the state and federal government, which ask us not to, to get together and meet. And we are being obedient Christians and honoring their wishes. But we still want to get God's word out to you. I know this is a very weird time. Uh, Friday night, the county government told everyone to shelter in place this weekend. 
And uh, so it is just a different world out there. And you know it's getting closer when you actually have actual people you know that have this and are in ICU. I know my son sent me a message that one of his former co-workers at Costco is in ICU. So we want to make sure we lift him up. I have other people that work for me that their children are in uh, work at, at a hospice and their wife is a nurse in a critical care unit. So it's scary times and it's time just to lean on Jesus to get us through it. And so today's passage is a promise of the coming blessing when Christ comes and returns to rule the millennium. We're going to look at all 23 verses in chapter 8. So if you need to take some time, pause this message so you can get comfortable, get supplies, get your Bible, get a pen and writing utensil, and then when you get all that, come back. We're going to look ahead to the first two Sundays in April. Of course, that's the greatest times to be a believer. We'll reflect on Palm Sunday, then we have Good Friday, and then we have the greatest time of all, Easter, when Jesus rose from the dead and brought all those prophecies in the Old Testament to true. And then we come back to Zechariah from that precious time, and as believers, we get to go over the prophecy all over again, because we'll be in Zechariah chapter 9, and that talks about Jesus and Palm Sunday, and then goes into deeper prophecy about his return and his victories. So, with this, what have you learned about yourself during this time with the COVID virus? Um, not others' reaction to it, but yours. Has it drawn you even closer to Jesus, or are you staying steady in your relationship, whether it's good or bad? Or has panic become your new God? And we're still in this crisis, so I hope that we get to the other side, and we will, that you have a deeper understanding and a deeper love for Jesus. Zechariah 7 and 8 are perfect for the time we are in. I loved Al's message last week, and looking at chapter 8, this is perfect for the time we are in. And by being in these two sections, now it shows that Jesus is in control. And what I mean by that is here in L.A. County, we are in the safer at home policy in response to the COVID-19 virus. And we hit these two passages as our first two. What a precious God that we have. I just want to pray real quick and say, thank you, Jesus. You are so good to us even when we don't realize it or deserve it. Okay, this will be different. So I'm going to take this time. I'm going to let you all in your groups or however you're doing this to let your group read all 23 verses of Zechariah 8. You guys do it. You don't need me to do it. You can do it with one person or you can do it with assigning roles. But go ahead, and when you're ready, I want you to pause this message and have someone read the 23 verses in chapter 8, and then come back together and 
pick back right up where you left off and we'll get started back again. Okay? Now in Zechariah chapter 7 8, these are transition chapters. And what I mean by that is after the visions we have in 1 through 6, and then the prophesying that comes through 9 through 14, these two serve as a transition to get, get us through to the next one. And what I mean by that is chapter 7 starts off with the question, and that question is answered at the end of chapter 8. Now, we remember that question was concerning if the people still needed to continue their practice of fasting since the temple was almost done. And God uses Zechariah to remind the people of the important covenant promises so they can reapply those important covenant requirements and work for restoration. And chapter 7 focused on the failures of the previous generations, while Zechariah reminds them in chapter 8 of what was lost and what is coming in the way of a blessing to him. Zechariah tells us to be obedient in the light of future blessings. Now, the future blessings of the nation at the end of chapter 8 will function to introduce chapters 9 through 14. And those last six, six chapters of Zechariah tells the nations how they will recognize the Lord once in Jerusalem. And then, hint, hint, Palm Sunday's coming up. And Zechariah 9.9. And chapter 8, as you look at it, and as you've read it, you've probably heard some things being repeated over and over again. Chapter 8 contains 10 promises of blessings. And you will see it when you come to a verse that starts off with, Thus says the Lord of hosts. You see that in verses 2, 3, 4, 6, 7, 9, 14, 19, 20, and 23. And then, also in chapter 8, you have two broad sections that each start with, And the word of the Lord of the hosts came to me. So chapter 8 is all about God's desire for a restored relationship with his people. God's, God's people will experience this blessing and they will reflect his character to the world, and the world will be drawn to seek the Lord. Now, where did we see that earlier in Zechariah? When I was going through that, it reminded me of, you know, we already just talked about God's people being the light to the world, and we saw that in the visions that Zechariah went through. And we saw it in the vision of the golden lampstand. The people, or the church, Remember, they're going to be filled with the never-ending supply of the Holy Spirit, and they're going to be a light. And the world will see this light and be drawn to God because of it. Now, keep that in mind. We're going to see that picture a little bit later. So, chapter 8's broken up in, in the five sections on blessing, and this is what we're going to go over. We're going to go over verses 1 through 8. The Lord is coming to bless. We're going to go through verses 9 through 15. Curses will turn into blessing. We're going to look then at verses 16 and 17, which is a renewed call to covenant faithfulness. 
And then verses 18 and 19, fasts will become feasts. And then we're going to finish with verse 20 and 23. And I use this one since it's was, was going to be the start of, of baseball's opening season. We're going to title this, Since He Built It, The Nations Will Come. Now, like I said before, chapter 8 is a very powerful chapter. God is still dealing with this question that was brought to him in chapter 7. The description, Lord of hosts, occurs 18 times in chapter 8. We always talked about when the Lord wants you to understand something serious, he says it like three times. Here we have in this passage, these 23 verses, the description Lord of hosts, 18 times. So this informs us that what Zechariah is telling us comes with all authority from God and that we need to pay close attention to what is being said. So number one, the Lord is coming back to bless. The Lord is coming back to bless. So let's look at the first three verses of Zechariah. Sorry, you're hearing my pages rustle. But it says, And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion. I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. So in verses 2 and we 3, two and three, in verses two and three, God starts talking about his jealousy for his people. And he didn't just do it here. He started in chapter one. So if we look back at chapter one, verse 14, God tells us, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. Now we can think of jealousy as a bad trait for a person to have. And So when we see this, and we see it around someone we love, we can try and steer them away from it, but not in God's case. Jealousy in God's case refers to his willingness to defend what rightly belongs to him by judging with great wrath both those that oppose his people and those of his people who refuse him. God being jealous is the reason he returned to his people in verse 3. And he's not just returning, but he's returning to dwell in the midst of his people. Think about that for a moment. He is not going to just come hang out. He is coming and he's going to be in the midst of his people. He tells us in one sixteen that he has returned to Jerusalem with mercy and his house will be built there. This is repeated here in verse 3. When the, God, when the glory of the Lord returns to Jerusalem, it should be called the faithful city, and God's people will reflect his character as reliable, dependable, and trustworthy. Remember those three, because you're going to see them a little bit later in this passage. So what a gr- time of great love that will be when God is among his people, and since we are covered in Christ's blood, we will be in the midst of God. 
Now that should cause a great sense of awe to overcome you as we not just hear about this, but fully realize that one day we are going to be in the midst of God forever. Now the term mountain is a reference to Mount Zion, the temple site in Jerusalem. This will be the holy mountain that God will dwell upon it. Our holy God will dwell there and his holiness will expand throughout Jerusalem and Judah. This will be a greater version than we see in Kings 8.10. So in 1 Kings 8.10, that says, And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. So this will be a greater picture of that. Now let's look now at verses 4 and 5. Zechariah 8, 4 and 5. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. So if you see on the Facebook page, you'll see some pictures of some old people with a staff in their hand. And also, you'll see pictures of kids at play. Out of all of this, I think this these are the sweetest two verses to me. Especially in light of what we have going on in the world right now with the COVID virus. We don't really see the really old people hanging on the streets, chatting with friends and repeating the same stories over and over again. And... To hear the voices of kids out playing is just magical, and I have not heard those. And also, at this time, what they're referring to in Jerusalem, it's been a lot of years since those two things took place. These two verses depict a happy time when there is joy and there's peace and the streets of the city are full of life. These verses... God used to contrast the pain and suffering that took place when the elderly and the youth um, went through a very difficult time during the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem, Jerusalem during the prophet Jeremiah's time. We see in Lamentations 2, 10 and 12, Lamentations 2, 10 and 12, we see a picture of old ones with no hope and young ones dying in their mom's arms. So let's look at Lamentations 2, 10 through 12. It says, The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads, and they put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is the bread and wine? And they fainted like a wounded man in the streets of the city, and their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. This is why verses 4 and 5 are so sweet. 
When God is in their midst, old people will be with dear friends hanging out, and they will have the staffs in their hand to help them. Now, I looked, I looked up the Hebrew word for staff because I know a lot of you, in your minds already, you're working through that word, and you're asking yourself, does that word mean golf club? I could say it does not. I looked because I knew you'd be thinking that, but no, it does not. So the image from these two verses to the people in Zechariah's day would be one of people in neighborhoods. When they say the streets and all that, they're not talking about main thoroughfares. They're talking about neighborhood streets. And it's old people hanging out with their neighbors and friends and kids playing in the street. And it's been a long time. It's been around 70 years since that happened. So what a blessing. What an absolute blessing that will be when it takes place. And in verse 6, verse 6 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of the people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? So, after God wrote verses 4 and 5, he reflects and says the thought of the old people relaxing in the sun, telling the same stories, like I said, over and over, while kids play in the street. That may seem wonderful for us, but it may seem after 70 years like it will never happen again. But God's saying, do you think that's too tough for me? No, you're going to experience that again. And this entire chapter is devoted to, thus saith the Lord. So this would be your blessing despite what you have been through and despite what hardships that they have been through. So, after God wrote verses 4 and 5, he reflects and says that the thought of, again, old people relaxing in the sun, sharing time with each other, while kids playing in the street, may seem wonderful and incredible, and it may be miraculous to them because it hasn't happened in so long. But God says, you know what? It's not too tough for me. In fact, you will experience it again. You will. And this entire chapter is devoted to, thus saith the Lord. This will be your blessing. Despite everything they've been through, despite all the hardships, God's going to make it happen. Now, these blessings continue in verses 7 and 8. 7 and 8 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east and from the west country. I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. The Lord tells his people, I will bring you back from all the places you live. Now in the Hebrew, it can be read as God telling his people, I will save you from where the sun rises and the sun sets. So basically, everywhere God's people are and where they're living, they'll be brought back home and be in the midst of Jerusalem. So we see that terminology. And we know from previous lessons that there is no country to the west of Hebrew. 
because that's the ocean, Mediterranean Sea. And there's no place east immediately of Jerusalem because that is the Arabian Desert. So we see it's a picture of universality where the sun rises and the sun sets. Everywhere that this happens, people living in, that see the sunrise and sunset will be returned. And it's kind of akin to where Jesus said, I will forgive your sins from as far as the east is to the west. So what's so cool about this statement is that God said he will bring his people to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Now, who else is there? Remember just a little bit ago, we said in verse 3 that God tells us he will be living in the midst of Jerusalem. So God is making a very tender and precious statement to us that we will be his people and he will be in our he will be our God and we will dwell together there forever. And we see that statement in multiple places before the fall of Jerusalem and the 70-year exile. We see it in Jeremiah 24-7. 24-7, when Jeremiah, through God, tells them, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And he also tells them in Jeremiah 31, 33. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And we also see it in Ezekiel eleven twenty. Ezekiel eleven twenty, and that says that they may walk by my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So you can take those and you can praise God for his faithfulness and praise God for, above all things, his promises that we know will come to fulfillment. Now we go on to section two, curses turn to blessings. Curses turn to blessings. And we see that in verse nine to start with. And that says, thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day of the Lord that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid that the temple might be built. So let your hands be strong. That is a call for courage. It's a call to keep up God's work on the temple and trust that he will protect them from two things. Number one, their enemies who have been trying very hard to prevent them from completing the temple. And two, their indifference. They had come and starred on the temple, and when that work got hard, they turned to start building their own lives and became indifferent to God. They stopped working on their temple then they took wives for their sons from their enemies around them, and it took Nehemiah to come on the scene and wake them up. 
Now, Nehemiah's passion for God turned the people to seek forgiveness and get back to work. And in verses 10 and 11, it says, For before those days there was no wage for man, nor any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I sent every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. Zechariah speaks of the indifference in verse 9. In these two verses after, he's recalling the previous years when there was no wage to work for and the Samaritans and other people in the land harassed them. What they did not realize, though, is while their labor was free, it was not in vain. It was accomplishing God's plan, and it was being obedient to him, but that's not what they thought. They are humans like us, and they were fearful from their neighbors, and they saw no immediate benefit from being obedient. They are humans like us, and they were fearful from their neighbors, and they saw no immediate benefit from being obedient. But we see in verse 11 that God is reversing the tough situation they're in and removing his curse and making it a blessing. Verses 12 and 13. For there shall be sowing of peace, the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of his people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah, house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. That blessing that is coming is a sowing of peace. You may ask, what does that mean, a sowing of peace? God is intentional with that word. This peace is an agricultural peace as well as absence of warfare. Now, this will be a full experience of God's salvation and his blessing. Verse 12 promises the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. The vines giving its fruit would not have been lost on this audience. They were a people of the ground. They knew what they meant. They knew it takes years to get a crop from a vineyard that's planted brand new. And then wars that take place destroy the land. And their enemies then would sometimes fill the land with stones to make it harder to plant. But God is blessing them by telling them they will have all three gifts as their inheritance. Then the biggest blessing of all is God telling his people that they have been hated since they were made a people to the present day and to the future. But at this time, God will take that away and make them a blessing. And they are to be brave and they are to be courageous. Now verses 14 and 15. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, 
so fear not. God wants his people to know that they have no need to fear. He was going to bring disaster upon them, but not now. He says, you know, when your fathers provoked me to wrath, I took them up on it, and I did not relent with my wrath. But now he's going to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. They need not to fear. What comforting words is that for them right now? They need not to fear. No matter what happens, we have no reason to fear because the best is yet to come. Item three now, section three, a renewed call to the covenant faithfulness. This is in verses 16 and 17. 16 and 17. These are the truths that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgment that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these I hate, declares the Lord. Besides rebuilding the temple, God wants his people to follow four commands. Two of these call for honesty, integrity, and personal relationships. And they are speak the truth and do not devise evil in your hearts. And the next two call for correct administration of justice in the community. And those are render in your gates judgment. And then four, love no false oath. God wants his people to understand that they must be ethical and love truth and justice. Section four, this covers verses 18 and 19, and it's fasts will become feasts. Section four, fasts will become feasts. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth month and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and love peace. Here now we return to the question that was presented to God in chapter 7. Remember last week, we see that the question these foolish people asked was not out of anything other than their own concern. And God asked them, Who did you fast for? Did you fast for me? Or did you fast for appearance sake? Because fasting without obedience is hypocritical to God. And the second question God asked them was, when they ate and drank at their festivals, who did they celebrate? Did they celebrate God or themselves? And these are tough questions. And then we see in verses 18 and 19, God adds two fasts that were not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. God states a fast in the fourth month and the tenth month. And all these solemn fasts, though, will be replaced with cheerful, joyous feasts. God's people will have radical, ethical transformation and then have amazing celebrations. Okay, the fifth section. Since he built it, the nations will come. And this covers verses 20 through 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another city. Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard the Lord is with you. So at the beginning of chapter 7, a delegation came from Bethel to Jerusalem to entreat the favor of the Lord. That journey will now be a pattern for the inhabitants of many cities in the future. So we get an idea of what it would be like. Let's look back at to when we went through Thessalonians. Remember, they were like on a major thoroughfare. So we would see how people would come in through to Thessalonica. They would come in and, and learn about what was going on there. And then they would travel all over, or business people from Thessalonica would travel all over. And as they did, they would stop and communicate what was going on. And that was that time period's email and social media. So we see now in verse 22, the desire is to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And this desire spreads to many people and many strong nations. So the powerful will recognize true power. And they will come to entreat Jesus to seek mercy and salvation. And then in verse 23, in those days points us to the future day of salvation. And the ratio of 10 to 1 speaks to a great multitude from the nations and every tongue. And we see that, we see that in Revelation 7-9 when it talks about this great multitude of the nations and every tongue. And then previously we spoke of the term Babel equaling evil and how God used the term Babylon to symbolize a great evil. So this verse is in contrast to what happened in Babel. There in Babel, they stood in opposition of God, so he confused their language and scattered them abroad. This is the reversal. We're going to see all nations and languages will seek God, and not just seek him, they will seek him on his terms and they will join together for cheerful feasts in Jerusalem. And then grabbing a hold of the robe, that symbolizes laying a claim or wanting a desired outcome. And I know you all know about that. I, I imagine most of you, when you heard they're going to grab a robe of a Jew, you thought, like I did, of Ruth, as she laid claim to marry her redeemer, Boaz, by taking hold of his robe at night. Also something you can miss out is the term here, Jew. The term Jew here refers to a man from the tribe of Judah. And in these chapters, Judah is mentioned 14 times. That is because God is continuing to show the crucial importance of the tribe of Judah in God's, God's salvation plan. Judah is the tribe of David, 
and the future Davidic king that was promised through his line. The nation's desire to go to Jerusalem is because they have heard that God is with you. And we see that in Isaiah 7.14 and 8.10. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with you. And then in Isaiah 8.10, it says, Take counsel together, but I will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. With God's return, the nations will turn from enemies of God to friends of God. So we see a question about the need to continue a fast in view of the temple being rebuilt. And that turned into God calling his people into a renewed covenant obedience. So we now know Israel is to reflect the character of God in their lives with a view to the salvation of the nations. The call to obedience is a response to God's turning to his people in mercy and grace now that that 70-year period of punishment that was communicated through Jeremiah is coming to an end. Christians now have every spiritual blessing in Christ and are called to a new covenant obedience in view of God's grace and saving us in Christ Jesus. Cool about thinking about that living in obedience in view of God's grace and saving us through Jesus Christ is the references that talk about that are all in the book of Ephesians, a majority of them. And it just so happens that's the next book we're going to be going through once we complete Zechariah. So some verses to write down and look at. Some verses to write down and look at, and I'm going to give you a homework assignment later is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Christ, Christians are to live in a view of the future consummation of all things. And then Ephesians 1, 3 through 12. And this talks about that new covenant obedient involves reflecting God's character to the world. Let me say that again. The new covenant obedience also involves reflecting God's character to the world. That's a big deal in Zechariah, and here we see it in Ephesians. Ephesians 5.1 says, To be imitator, imitators of God as beloved children. To be imitators of God as beloved children. So your homework assignment, your homework assignment is to read Ephesians 4.17 through 520. Read Ephesians 4:17 through 520. And I want you to know Paul's similarity to the old covenant. And the marked difference is that we have God's resurrection of power at work within us. So completing this, I want to give you an application to consider. I want to give you an application to consider. Why are we here? Are we here at Soma out of love or are we here out of appearance? 
Are we just coming on Sundays and then also suffering through community group when there's no obedience or marked love for God? Because if not, we're just being hypocritical to God. In light of everything that we know that's coming to pass in the future, we already know it. And knowing what God has told us how to behave and how to be, to be strong, to be fearless, to be learning about him, to be truthful, to just be loving. How are we holding up in that? I want you to think about this. You don't have to give me an answer. I think we can see it in your fruit. Just want to thank you all now for your time and making it through the end of this. And we love you. Jesus loves you. And we are praying for you to get through this COVID-19 virus. And when you get a chance, I want you to get up in groups of your family. And if you haven't done it already, go ahead and take communion for this week. All right. I love you all. And we will be getting in touch with you for how we're going to do uh, Palm Sunday, how we're going to do Good Friday, and how we're going to do Easter. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just want to take this time and just lift you up. We know you are the Word. We know this Bible is all about you. And we see the good that's promised to us through you and through this word, how at the end of all things, this short life we're on, these little insignificant problems we have, and then especially in these weeks that we saw the life that you had, the short life that we would consider 32, 32 years as being, and the torturous way that you suffered out of obedience to your Father, so we would have a way through to heaven, we can't thank you enough. How insignificant we can be thinking that we are more important. Just forgive us. Help us to love you all the more and help us to dive into your word and truly take this time of, of quarantine serious that we can get up and spend time with you and truly learn about you. We love you so much. We pray mercy for this land. Pray mercy for the people that are out every day in it, uh, serving their fellow man and ultimately serving you. Jesus, we love you. Amen. You all have a great week. And uh, let me know if there's anything I can do for you or anything I can pray for you. Love you guys. Bye-bye. Welcome, Soma. Good morning or good whatever time it is for you when you are listening to this. I hope you're all surviving the quarantine. I know I love the, the memes about how we're surviving during these times of being home and going stir crazy. Um, and the reason is God made us to be social. So this is difficult for a lot of people. And it appears people are getting around it by using the new community centers, wink, wink. And those, of course, are the home improvement stores. Why are they doing this? Well, because they're open and people can congregate there and talk. 
And I got to say, I just want to thank all of you for your response during this quarantine. Getting to hear how Soma has been caring for its neighbors and caring for each other is awesome. I know in our virtual community group, we use the application Zoom. We spoke at one point about who had what supply, who's running low, who needs to go to. And then trust me, if you're hearing this message and you're anywhere in the Southern California area and you need toilet paper, Colleen and I are the ones to go to. We got you covered. Well, we are growing in our virtual sermons. Um, Last week, the first one, Al recorded his precious message on his his phone. Um, This week, we're adding music to the message. And then we're looking to see how we can do video messages and attempting to do a virtual gathering for Good Friday. How awesome that will be. Now, before we get started today, I want to call your attention to our SOMA Facebook page. If you went there to hear this message, you saw a picture of SOMA kids playing and three old dudes and one younger dude with staffs in their hands. That does have a purpose. And when we get today to Zechariah 8 verses 4 and 5, you'll see why. These are images of our better days to come. Um, And Zechariah, it was a future better days for the city of Jerusalem, who had been without kids playing in the street and old people chatting for about 70 plus years. So while this time period will be one where the world remembers the quarantine of 2020 for a long period of time, and one day your kids may go to show and tell at school with their kids to talk about this experience, I do not believe that we will be hunkered down that long, as long as Jerusalem was. So, with that, let's jump in today's message with a call to worship. A call to worship, we're going to look at first, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. And it says, Blessed be the Lord, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will and the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time where we can come together as a body through this application and we can grow about you, learn about you, worship you in song together, and then hear what you have for us in your word. Just bless this time. Amen.
Welcome into the gathering of Soma Church and happy Resurrection Day. In the tradition of the church on this day, let's all say it. He is risen and he is risen indeed and now in heaven waiting his return. And you can say that the story of Resurrection Day starts when Jesus says, It is finished. Days later, his father responded, from years prior, of course, and we see that response in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The people of that day thought Jesus was already the king, and was entering into his kingdom, Jerusalem, and that he would crush the Romans, and then the partying would be on. And that was their view of Palm Sunday. But Jesus was actually coming into Jerusalem, and he would use Golgotha as his entry into the kingdom of God. And now, he is seated at the right hand of God, waiting for his millennial reign to occur. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just celebrate you this day when we think everything written about you, everything talking about this time from Moses through to the Psalms, through the Proverbs. We see it in Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the minor prophets. We're seeing it now as we go through the book of Zechariah. We see it all. And we celebrate you on this day, this resurrection day that lifted the cloud off our eyes and gave us grace. We thank you so much for this, Jesus, this big gift. It is awesome. And may we never contain ourselves when we stop and think about it. Amen. So here's where we're going today. Let's recap this week. I mean, we only get to do Holy Week once a year. And this year has been strange to say the least. So let's recap this week. So what is Holy Week about? Well, we started last week with Palm Sunday. And I like to say it started before that, actually. Um, we see it when Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. And that's pictured in Luke 9.53. And that verse says, but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. If you remember, Jesus and his disciples were heading towards Jerusalem, but they were stopping in a Samaritan town and they did not want to receive Jesus. And Jesus, with his face being towards Jerusalem, it didn't face him and they left. Jesus was starting that march towards the cross and that would serve as his launching pad to enter into heaven. So what follows next after, after um, Luke 9.53 is about two months of travel and teaching before we get to Palm Sunday that's mentioned in Luke 19.28. So, usually I have a homework assignment for you at the end. So here is your early, early homework assignment. Now, I want you to think about a time that you had dread in your life. Whether you were like me and you were making a weekly trip to the principal's office during that era in our history where you could receive SWATs from a principal, 
or whether you're heading to a doctor's office because they would not tell you the results of a test they took over the phone, or it could be something else in your life that caused you major dread, like maybe it was a love letter from the IRS. Now, in Jesus' case, he knew he had a date with the cross, and he was still dealing with people who did not understand why exactly he was there and what exactly was going to occur. So, on your homework assignment, I want you to read from Luke 9.53 to 19.28. And I, I don't want you to just breeze through these sections of teaching, but I want you to notice the emotion Jesus had and also note his teaching during this time. Now, I'll give you some examples. So, he taught on things like, have no fear in Luke 12.4. Do not be anxious in Luke 12, 22. You must be ready and dressed for action, like in Luke 12, 35. Jesus also called out the Pharisees, and he also showed emotion. So he was calling these proud leaders fools in Luke eleven forty. You can imagine that. These high-ended people, he was calling fools. Calling the people there, the evil generation in Luke eleven twenty nine. Could you imagine that in today's world, the pastor of a big box church? He would never risk doing that or he would lose his funding. But Jesus was not afraid. We see that in Luke eleven forty five. The religious leaders that let Jesus know, hey, you have hurt our feelings. And and I'll let you read that section to get Jesus' response to that comment. And in Luke 12, 1, he called the Pharisees hypocrites. And this was because they wanted to be seen as God's special children, but instead, they were lovers of money and sought only man's praise. Now we see his emotion on display in like Luke 10:21 Jesus rejoices and he thanks the Father that his disciples understood what the Pharisees should have but they didn't So please with what I have shared with you have this in mind and read this section alone and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you through it So next now we're going to move through Passion Week. So let's pick up at Luke 19, 41. Luke 19, verse 41. And we, talk about, we talked about this on Good Friday. Jesus just wept and he wept loudly over the fact that this was not his time as he entered Jerusalem. And it wouldn't be when he came to live within the midst of his people in Jerusalem, and to be its king at that time. And then we see later in verse 45, one of his first actions after Palm Sunday was he cleansed the temple. And then we go on to chapter 20, and Jesus is ramping up his teaching through parables, like in verse 9, and the story of the wicked tenants, just really calling out the religious leaders of that time. 
So now the response is the religious leaders are trying to trip him up and they fail. And in 2045, he gives a warning about them to the crowds. Actually, while these leaders are in their midst. I love this about Jesus. And I pray that we all get to this point in our Christian walk. And by that I mean, we get to where we care so much about the lost, we will not be thwarted in reaching out to them. And then in Luke twenty-two fourteen, we receive the second of the two commandments of God for the believer in the Lord's Supper. And at Soma, we hold this sacred reminder weekly, this future look to when we will all be with Christ and share in this meal together. And then in Luke 24, we start with the resurrection. Now, I want to point something out, and it's of vital importance for people like me that aren't early risers. Now, I was talking to people this week that um, work for me and other believers and, and talking about what they're going to do with their church this whole weekend. And quite a few mentioned they were having virtual sunrise services. And for some reason, people to love to get together and have a sunrise service on Easter. Now, I don't get it because to me, when I read the passage, Jesus was long gone out of that tomb before the sun rose. And in fact, if you read verse 1, it says the women were there to attend to him in the early dawn and the stone was away from the opening and Jesus was not there. So with that knowledge in hand, I think we need to shift around the mindset of that. And so typically with that knowledge, we would have services at midnight. We should be celebrating Christ's resurrection as soon as the clock strikes 12. And then to really be a Resurrection Day purist, we would actually start this at midnight when it's Sunday in Jerusalem time. So what that means, people, is that means that every Saturday at 2 p.m., we would celebrate the Resurrection Day. And so, you know, I did send out a Happy Resurrection Day text to my community group on Saturday, letting you know that, hey, at 2 p.m., they should take a time out and praise Jesus for his great work. I don't ever think this will catch on, but doing this versus getting up early and doing a sunrise service to celebrate the empty tomb, um, when we know the empty tomb occurred so much earlier in the evening, um, I, I just think it makes sense to do it the day four. Now, after the initial discovery of the resurrection, we find that Jesus in Luke 20, we find Jesus in Luke 24, 13, 
on the road to Emmaus, traveling with two believers. Now these believers had been fully caught up in the hope that Jesus would have redeemed Israel at that time. And they didn't recognize Jesus, but they were telling him of their hopes and telling him what happened. So then Jesus, starting in verse 25, actually walked with the two believers and he walked them through the prophecy in the Old Testament that speaks of what was actually occurring. Now, this means from how Moses until this time God had been in complete control and Jesus went through all the passages that concerned him and explained why they described a suffering servant that would bring forgiveness through his death. Now they were only on a seven mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. So Jesus must have just hit the high points or they weren't walking that fast. And then we see in 2444, Jesus in the upper room with all his disciples and believers. And he opens their minds to the passages and they see why he had to die. That he did this remarkable act for their salvation so that they would be together with him forever. What a precious and tender scene that must have been. And Christian, we see that in Ephesians chapter 4, 7 and 8, that Paul uses the passage in Psalm 68, 18 to tell us that Christ's victory over death has brought us grace. Paul uses that passage to demonstrate that just like a king would bring home the victory spoils from war and lavish them on his people, Christ earned the right in his victory over death to lavish grace on us. After his ascension to the throne, we received all the spiritual gifts empowered to us by the Holy Spirit. So in Christ, all the shadows pointing to a Messiah have been lifted, and we know that those were Jesus. We are now able to look ahead and heed his warning to be ready. We will get to live with him forever as a direct result of his victory over death. So this is a special day to reflect on the great love of our Savior. So as we part today, I want you to remember your homework this week to reflect on what Jesus went through prior to the cross and see that emotion, see his teachings. Imagine, imagine what he's doing from when he turned his face to walking all the way through coming into Jerusalem and see and get a better understanding. I love you all, and I can't wait until that time where we can be all together as a church body. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much for what this day means to the Christian. It is the ultimate. 
It is the day you proved everything your father had said in the Old Testament. Every act that we see you in the Old Testament has come to fruition. We think of those four glorious songs about you in Isaiah, and we see it all through there, the servant, the suffering servant that would become our Messiah. What an honor and what a blessing to be one of yours and to be praising you during this time and thanking you for your obedience and your great gifts that you've lavished upon us. Jesus, you are so good to us. You are so good. You came to earth. You lived among us. You loved us. You put up with us. You taught us. You took so much grief from the social elite that would not understand and did not understand why you were here. We thank you for the obedience. We think of just the anxiety you went through in your humanness and then the great power you showed in your majesty as God. We thank you so much and we know that you are seated right now at the right hand of your father and you're waiting for him to tell you, hey, go get him. We can't wait for that day to occur. We love you so much. Amen. Okay, if you don't have your communion elements out, go ahead and pause this recording right now until you can gather up anything you want to use for communion. And then we will pick it back up as soon as you hit play. Now, communion, it's no better time than this Holy Week. We think of Maundy Thursday when Jesus gave us that great mandate for love, loving one another, as he washed his disciples' feet and then instituted that sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So what better time then to come on Resurrection Day when he proved it all true and share this meal together? Now, as you have that piece of bread in your hand, we think of what that meant and we get no better picture of his body broken and torn for us than through what occurred by the hands of the Romans and with the full acceptance of the Jews before his death. We think of it broken for us, for our salvation. And we take it and eat it and give you all the glory, Jesus. And then we think of the cup. We think of what it represents. How this cup was his blood spilled for us. And how this cup serves as a reminder for us. Every time and we come together. And we realize that this cup represents that his blood shed for us to cover a multitude of our sins. Let's go ahead and take that cup now. Jesus, you're just so amazing. And we could spend the rest of our life 
learning and praising you and it will never be enough. That's why we are so fortunate. We get to be together with you forever in heaven doing that and that won't be enough. So thank you. We thank you for this time that we get to praise you over and over again and what this means for us. Amen. All right, Soma, you enjoy the rest of this Resurrection Day. And I am serious about your homework. If you forgot already, just play this back and pick it up. I think with the enlightenment I've given you of what to look at and what to think about, you will truly see what Jesus went through. And I encourage you to do it. Until next week, we love you guys. Take care. And if you have any needs or concerns, talk to your community group or send them to me on my um, cell phone and we'll be in touch. Love you all. Bye-bye.